the question was about Hitler and occultism. Alok had mentioned something that Hitler was an occultist. Uh, there's a lot of literature which was set aside because the people who investigated Hitler's uh, rule did not understand it or thought his occultism was just a side of his uh, madness. But in fact, he was a powerful occultist who was part of certain occult groups which were in Europe at the time, which chose to enter in relation with certain Asuric forces for their own ends. They used symbols, sacred symbols perverted, as you know, the swastika was perverted by him. And he himself used to, as a medium, used to invoke some Asuric beings and derive guidance and power from them for whatever he did. What he did was not humanly possible. It was driven by the Asuric force. But the, I wanted to share something which came from uh, the point Alok made of how he misused certain terms, including Superman. There's an interesting dimension to it. Hitler was convinced that the Superman existed on Earth and was alive. It was a conviction he had. And he sent out certain teams of exploration to find this Superman. And he had a sense that the Superman was somewhere in the East, India or Tibet. And he had expeditions sent to these two places to try to find this person. And uh, with Tibet, he had a lot of dealings in the occult, including they found at one place uh, after his reign was over, 1,000 Tibetan monks who had died in a place in Germany. So he was doing something with them, and they were part of some occult branch. Now, the interesting part was looking for his Superman towards the end of the World War, there was a submarine that actually reached the Pondicherry coast. And late in the evening, after sunset, it shone a searchlight on the whole Pondicherry town, and the whole place was lit up, according to people who saw it there. This was just at the end, when there was a possibility of the Japanese invasion of India and things like this. And that's around when the Second World War soon ended. But he had gone quite far and come very close to the real Superman, as you know. <laughs> A lot of details are there in George's book, Hitler and his God, and even in the book Beyond Man. So, of course, Story of Mother's Life, and very detailed data. It's a wonderful book, and those who are interested, a lot of work he has done, a lot of genuine research. Also Maggie's book, The Light mm. That Shone in the Dark. Abyss. Yes, Maggie's book, The Light That Shone in the Dark. Abyss. When you describe them, they sound like they have so much negative energy already associated with it. I don't know whether I want to read it. Should we read it? What should be on No, it's not necessary. I mean, in case you have an interest. But they are not uh, negative energy in that sense. I mean, they are about the way the divine, one particular aspect of the divine action upon this uh, earth. So that, I mean, I have not read that book, Hitler and his God. But the other one, Beyond Man, is a fantastic book. Then Light That Shone Into the Dark Abyss is a wonderful book. Very nice book. But, but if there are other books, oh, there's one called Occult Reich, which goes into that whole side by some Western historian. Those are quite dark, and I'd suggest you don't bother with them if you don't want to. Uh, there's one book, though, which will be very interesting and inspiring, of which the essence is available in Light That Shone in the Dark Abyss. It's by Maggie, the story of someone called John Kelly, an American army man who, on the battlefield in Europe, 
saw Sri Aurobindo's form appear before him and Sri Aurobindo's formed appearance led him through all the dangerous points including avoiding certain explosive situations and bombs falling and got him all the way out of it till the end of the war and that whole documentation is part of a book called Great Sir and Heaven Lady. It's deeply moving and inspiring. You can look at that. There were others in the Second World War who also saw Sri Aurobindo. There's a guy called Silvio Crasionas, I think Romania, who was imprisoned and while in jail, they were torturing him to release information. He was a high-level intelligence officer of the resistance movement. And when he felt he was about to go mad, he found himself pulled out and transported to a certain level where he met this dark figure who led him through 15 days of suffering and he could hear his body screaming somewhere down there and his consciousness was free and high above. And this man led him through great philosophical teachings and showed him his life's purpose. And when it was all over, the man said, okay, now I will go away. Uh, the war is going to come and end. Within two days, someone will come and free you up, which actually happened. And he said, but who are you? What's your name? And the man wrote a book afterwards called The Lost Footsteps, in which he writes the name as he heard it and understood it. And it's written O-R-O-B-I-N-D-O-G-O-S, Aurobindo Ghosh, or Aurobindo Ghosh. But the picture he saw was very different from the regular picture of Sri Aurobindo. It was one of the aspects of Sri Aurobindo, sitting next to a Kali temple, incidentally. Quite amazing. John Kelly actually came to the ashram. Yes, he met the mother and recognized her as one of the, as the heaven lady who appeared to him also on the battlefield. session that you heard that we have two bodies. Swadhyala was talking about physical body, subtle body. Then you also have another body called a causal body. And if you look at the time frame, and a disease-free body should last at least 120 years, a physical body. But when you do the daily dinacharya, yogic lifestyle, can you hear me? When you maintain a daily yogic lifestyle, what happens, the physical body goes back to, from your consciousness, from outside in, then is go low to the high. So in what you are talking about psychic basically, we are talking about all about you know, spirituality. Spirituality basically is a believing in a supreme power and surrendering and what we have in addition to our three bodies physical body, subtle body, causal body in Sanskrit we call it a sthulo sharir, shukha sharir and karana sharir we also have five sheets around us called a koshas called a annamaya kosha Pranamaya Kosha, Manamaya Kosha, Vikanamaya Kosha, Anandamaya Kosha. Annamaya Kosha is made of your food, Pranamaya Kosha is the 
prana, the life force, panamaya kosha is a mind, vikanamaya kosha is rationality, anandamaya kosha is a bliss. All the five sheets are also having nutrition comes from daily yogic practice. As I told you, yoga is a 24-7. Not that we are doing 6.30 yoga or listening to all of us for the yoga. It is your daily lifestyle. Then we have seven chakras. Seven chakras, they start from the bottom, Hayab. You get into from Muladhara chakra, Shadisan chakra, Manipur chakra, Anahata chakra. You get a Vishuddha chakra, Agga chakra, and then Shastra chakra. Now what this yoga is going to do, when you chant the word Om, A for your physical body, U for your mental body, M for your causal body. And the Ma awakens all the chakras. And then slowly and slowly when you get into a real yogi lifestyle practice, your Agga chakra from here, your center goes to Shastra chakra. There is the Agga chakra where it's called a pituitary gland and in the Sahasra chakra is a pineal gland. Between the pituitary gland and the pineal gland we have our called a ventricle, called a third ventricle. That is called Brahma's cave. You heard the whole morning about Brahman, what Sraddhalu was talking about, that's a Brahman. So again in the psychic way and again what is asking HP is that if you maintain a yogic lifestyle with two components what we discussed about downstairs is called the philosophy and the practice of yoga. Remember one thing, yoga is not an exercise, yoga is a spiritual practice and your physical body should last at least what we know at this time, at least for 120 years and for your mental body and causal body, probably infinite. Any comments on that? Yes. Question further to that. Um, having known this, um, we still know of so many uh, great yogis or gurujis or, you know, who have lived a, a lifestyle like that and yet have had disease like cancer, quite a few of them, and I wonder often how, why they would have it if they have the knowledge of keeping these things at bay, how do so many of them end up there, these kind of there are two explanations is that, is that when you become spiritual, when you have your descendants, when you have a connection, connectivity between them, we absorb everything from our followers. And remember one thing, we are all connected. Even if you do mathematics today, there is a program called Heart Math. I think I explained to you this morning, this afternoon that if you connect me with my blood pressure monitor, if you connect with my heart rate, if you do all my physiological parameters and you put the heart math in front of me, I get improvement. But if I'm sitting here and then start doing all of them in this room, the whole physical parameter comes down because we are all connected. And second most important thing you have to understand that the mind which controls our physical body. It's not the physical body controlling mind. We start from a consciousness. 
Our body is not made of molecules. It starts from the consciousness to unmanifest to manifest. Manifest is called Pancho Mahabhuta, the five elements, space, air, fire, water, earth. Now, you remember the story, what Alok said today, that the fellow with the depression went to the psychiatrist, they gave the antidepressant medication, told him to play tennis. So what happened to him? He started playing a competitive tennis, he increased his pitta, and what the pitta did? People who have a depression, there are 60% incidence of heart disease, it's called, a syn it's called a syndrome Z. So increasing his pitta, he got a heart attack and he died. So basically what you have to know, is all the what answer to it is, and all the rishis, gurus, what we have, you know, you really don't know what is happening, but most of the thing you see, that it comes to them, and also the disease you see in the physical body, what we know, it is not in the yogic perspective. Because the physical body, as I explained to you again and again, this is like a hardware. This physical body, whatever you do to physical body, is nothing to do with your mind. Your mental body and physical body, even if it is together, even the mental body is plastic, physical body is non-plastic, physical body in a cyber sense is a hardware. If there is a bug in the software or in the programmer, that is the problem. It is all like a wireless modem. I am the hardware. Wireless modem is a software. I need the connectivity, I need the password. The password is the yoga. But answering to that is basically is it's only the absorption we do and nothing to do with this physical body. To add to that, uh, you have to distinguish between yogis and what they were practicing and for what. That changes everything. There are people who have sought self-realization with no interest in the body at all. And then the body may be utterly neglected and may even wither away from just uh, lack of attention. There were yogis who had a mission to accomplish. They completed it. They left their body. And at that point, at the time of leaving, they may take the burden of karma of their disciples as part of their service and take it on their own consciousness, go through apparently so many diseases, but it's because they've taken it because they're ready, to, they're ready to go anyway. And they're just helping people in the process. And then there are Hatri Yogis, as distinct from Raja Yoga, or Karma Bhakti Jnana Yogas, or Tantra. Hatri Yogis whose concentration is on the body consciousness and body itself, and by whatever processes, they are able to dramatically extend the body's health and lifespan. But still the body is decaying. They've just slowed down decay. And there is a need to rejuvenate. And sometime at the age of 80, you go through a uh, kaya kalpa or something and come out 40 years younger looking. And then again, you have to do a kaya kalpa. In such processes, you can extend to 150, even 200 years. But the body is decaying. The fundamental principle of decay has not been overcome. And eventually they have to go anyway. What Sri Aurobindo is speaking of in terms of physical transformation is none of these things. He is speaking of a fundamental change of working of the body consciousness at the cellular level, including where the cells participating in the consciousness of the divine immortality share in that immortality as a result of their divinization. 
That means fundamentally the principle of decay has been overcome. And the cells are immortal by choice, by, by the choice of the divine will. And such a person then with a transformed physical body could potentially live physically as long as he wanted, reshape the body at will or drop the body at, as he chooses and take a new body without any loss of continuity of consciousness. So this is what Srivinda is referring to when he speaks of physical immortality. It's a very different concept from anything achieved so far in terms of life extension or apparent immortality. Same question. Uh, in today's materialistic lifestyle, especially in America and uh, modern lifestyle, how can you live the yogic lifestyle uh, without sacrificing the materialistic lifestyle? Very simple. Initially, you make time for yoga, and essentially, yoga will make time for you. It is so addictive. Once you get in there, slowly, and as I told you, the two tremendous components of a yogic lifestyle that it is individualized. You do not compete with anybody. You do not let you first let go. Cognitive inhibition is holding us down. The moment you let go, you will find that you will be maintaining an yogic lifestyle, being a CEO of the company, President of the United States, and living in the slum of Mumbai. There's absolutely no difference. It is all the, the conscious awareness of your mind. And believe me, it will happen. Try, you will love it. All the tattoos of New York. <laughs> Perfect place. <laughs> yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, I had a question for the of the morning's talk on Burma. And you just mentioned about the various yogas. So I wanted to understand a bit more about in traditional Raj Yoga, they have the, one of the stages or the, one of the goals is the Samadhi or Nirukha for service personnel. How does that translate to the experience you are talking in the morning about? There is a difference between some of the traditional Vedantic paths which also seek realization of Brahman from what Sri Aurobindo aims at. It is possible to enter into Brahman consciousness in a state of deep trance and then come out of it with nothing changed on the surface. You are a normal person, you go back into your deep trance, in trance state you are in Brahman consciousness you come out again, you're a normal person, maybe with an amplified glow of power reflected from that. But with no memory of that, with no actual change in consciousness from that, because the two are kept separate. So there's, ego and all there's no connection between the two states. That's why the importance of the connection for us. This is one type. There's another type where they call it Savikalpa, where you are in the Brahman consciousness, you look upon the world, you see Brahman, you participate in it, but your whole outer nature you see as part of the unreality of the world. Because being in Brahman consciousness, it is easy to see the world as trivial, irrelevant, unreal even. And then you participate in the unreal play with no real interest. You are full of the bliss and you remain in that. 
What Srivindu speaks of is a very different experience which is not described by any of these traditions. It is only described in the Vedic tradition. Where the world itself is seen not as unreal, but as a manifestation of the Brahman. And as a manifestation, the manifestation is not yet perfect. It is to be fulfilled in its perfection by the full actualization of Brahman consciousness as expressed in life, transforming life by it. So it's a very different experience from the most traditions. In terms of uh, the mind, you can say that also experientially, that in traditional yoga you enter into the static oneness or what is Shurabhinda is called as the passive Brahman. There is a status of Brahman where it stands aloof and apart from this universe where you can be and declare Shivoham, Shivoham, Nami Panchadhatu, nothing of this I am, I am only that. But there is equally another status of Brahman from which all has emerged and it is the dynamic side of the same Brahman. Now, most yogas are satisfied with entering into the state of the static Brahman and if one does that and can stay in that state for a long enough period, you can withdraw into it. But since in Shurabindu Yoga the stress is on transformation, so the dynamic side of the Brahman or the Shakti aspect, that must be received in the Adhar. So that makes the yoga very different because if one has to enter into the Brahman consciousness to merge and dissolve in it, then the preparation of Adhar, only that much is required which will not hinder the uh, withdrawal process. Which means the Adhar should not be too gross, too crude, too heavy. So a certain degree of sattvic discipline through Yama and Niyama, not a very rigid Yama Niyama from that standpoint, but is a natural course, helps the consciousness to become refined enough. So it doesn't hinder us, you know, the crude ties which tie us, it doesn't hinder in that, so you can withdraw. But if this Adhar has to receive the dynamic dance of the Divine, it is not enough for it to be just subtilized. It has to be strong and supple at the same time. It has to be wide as well as uh, solid so that it can receive without breaking down. It can receive and as it receives, it expands and undergoes a transformation. So the whole process becomes more difficult, more complicated, more painstaking, prolonged, etc., etc., etc. Second one stays within the body and opens the passage. So the stress is on opening to the mother rather than, you know, just going and merging into that. So the whole process changes. So Shivinda speaks of the passive Brahman and the dynamic Brahman. But uh, in um, the traditional yogas, we speak of the Vedantic side and the Tantric side. It's not spoken of like that. So Vedantic side is the Purusha side, the knowledge, the witness. And the Tantra side touches the power side of the Brahman. But again, there the goal is finally to uh, use the power to jump into that and vanish, ultimately at the end. So, but Shurabindu, that's why Shurabindu says one of his celebrated sentences, that the aim of Tantra through the path of Vedanta. So first one, as Siddhartha was saying, frees oneself from the clutch of material nature and its stronghold on our consciousness 
but then to receive it and to transform it. So this aspect has been missing in the past yogas. I just Takte Suleiman, which he has spoken of in. It's the experience of the mental infinite in the mind. So while speaking on the walking on the ridge of Suleiman, Takte Suleiman, where he experiences the vacant infinite. I just want to, you know, just elaborate a little bit on the last question. I just all remember one simple incident in Western lifestyle. Recently, I gave a little talk on yoga therapy on a rotary club. And here comes the CEO of a company, comes and tells me, you know what, whatever you told me today about all about yoga, we know all about it. I just don't practice it. Then he tells me, you know, I have three children. After a whole day when I come home, I'm so irritated, my physical body, I cannot control my mind. The kid comes and jumps on me. I said, oh, here goes my suit. I have to go ahead and send it to the laundry. They takes the pencil, marks it, put a mark in the wall. I just go take it out. Don't do it. Continuously it irritates me. So I said, it is your body, your life. You heard everything what I say. You know everything. Can you take care of yourself? Three weeks down, he calls me. I said, I have done it. I feel great. So what have you done? I said, at the end of the day, before I go home, I park my car, I open the windows, close my eyes. I sorry, close, put in Dhana Mudra. Just stay in silence for 15-20 minutes. When I go home, kid jumps on my lap, just a suit, I'll send it to the laundry. Puts a mark in the wall, fine. The kids are grown, I'll get a painter to paint it. Nothing bothers me. That is staying calm in the middle of crisis. Do not react. The time between action and reaction. Whole morning you heard about how our mind reacts for an action. It all goes down. So it is possible to maintain a dhinacharya, yogic lifestyle, in the middle of all the crises we have, even in the United States and in Greenville and in Farman University. Everything is possible. Yes. Very, easier, very, it's easier said than done. Okay, very simple. Uh, okay, very simple. 
Go ahead. I'm a very meditative person. I must stay calm. But eventually, you know, you will be taken as a victim and you will not survive. Very change in the... Yeah, but answer to that is, in a yogic lifestyle, you do not want to change anybody. You change yourself. People all around you will change. If you practice yogic lifestyle, you lose few things in your life. One is called competitiveness. One is called a judgment. One is called expectation. One is worries, anxieties. The moment you start losing those and you don't react and you change yourself, you will see how the whole world changes around you. You will be shining like a star. You have to take the judgment out. It is a two judgment. But start with the big non-judgmental. No question about it. We can talk about it whole night. But basically, you remember one thing. Don't try to change anybody. Change yourself, whole world will change around you. Or you, or you uh, Again, another question. <coughs> the, uh, you, you want to... Yes, I just want to make a few observations. Calm and peace are not contradictory to action. They are the basis of a mighty action. Otherwise, Gita will be absolutely irrelevant. That's number one. Number two, there is nothing wrong with the ego in normal life. I don't understand why do we suddenly, you know, have to transcend the ego. These are steps and stages. If there is an action required, a certain amount of play of personality comes into the picture. And each person must act according to his highest swadharma. This is the teaching of the Gita. Because if we all take an attitude of withdrawal from action, then we leave the field of this earth. It's not a question of ego. For me, it may be very fine because I'll be happy. That's true. I'll be in a state of bliss. But I leave this earth to a field of all kinds of darkness. So there is a possibility of an impersonal, transpersonal, universal and even transcendental action. And for that, Peace, calm, and what Dr. Sahib is saying, non-judgmental attitude, all these are required. Non-judgmental is not about not understanding the difference between rock music and raga. It's not about mixing a saint and a lunatic. It's about transcending the mind and our mind-based evaluation of things to a true evaluation of things. Sri Krishna, who completely... I mean, who could be more transcendent than him? And the whole Gita chapter after chapter says it is Brahma Vidya and, you know, Yoga Sutra. And he asks Arjuna to take a stand. And this stand is based not on personal values because the personal value of Arjuna was I am related to him. So he is dear to me. He is my teacher. He is my, you know, uh, grandfather and I am not supposed to do anything to him. So he says that is the mental and ego-based evaluation. Now there is something beyond the mental and ego-based evaluation and that is the way the divine is manifesting things and there are things which are useful and there are things which are not helpful. And one must act based on that. The calmer we are, the stiller we are, the more receptive to our, we are to that higher will. And therefore it is a basis for the greater action. But if a 
if somebody wants to withdraw from action, one has a choice, but still it is the base for a mighty action. In fact, the calmer we are, the more strength we have to act because we are no more bound by the uh, fear and uh, expectations and all these things that come because of the ego. Ego reactions are so much towards our own self. Many times people don't speak because they want to be, you know, pleasant or because they are afraid that this may happen. So they don't speak truth. But uh, I suppose in this world's life we have to see its dual nature. One is the individual side and the collective side. Individual side is what is happening to me in my inner life or outer life. Both are a kind of egoism. Action and withdrawal from action. Because they are both guided by one motive. I should be in a fine state. But this world has a collective side. Where divine is growing in this world. And therefore, because there is a collective side, and if we want to participate in the divine work, we have to make choices. And that's the whole teaching of the Gita. And the Gita which insists on the state of complete equanimity, equally says something. Fight, slay the adversary, conquer, rajyam samriddham. So, let's, you know... Always remember the collective aspect of the... Uh, just something to add, please. <laughs> I think it's important enough. There's, a, there's an important distinction between ego and egoism. Most of the time, and largely because of some of the populist formulas of spiritual life, these two are confused. That puts a lot of people like you in great confusion, sorry. <laughs> we have nothing against ego. The ego is meant to be thinned out gradually, to be replaced and filled by the true soul, gradually. If suddenly the ego is knocked out, you will be an empty personality, drifting, caught by all kinds of impulses. So the goal is not to eliminate ego straight away, but to gradually thin and replace. If you just thin out, it's not good enough, replace. Okay? So progressively. Egoism is what we shun. Egoism is constant reference to ego interest. So now when you are in this business situation, you have to act, there's something to be done for the interest of the business, okay, then you have to act as necessary for that. If you are not capable of that kind of action, you should not be in the business. If you are not capable of fighting, you should not be a warrior, you should not be in the army, whatever it is. So assuming you are in it for that reason, obviously. Then there are rules of the game. You have entered a domain of game where you have to play by those rules and here the rules are Dog eats dog. It's survival of the fittest. You play by that truth. And even if you have no personal enmity with a compete competitor, you have to take the necessary action which would prevent him from destroying you because he's going to kill you if you don't eliminate him or overcome him, whatever. But then, when you come home, you live by the new rules of home life. The error people make is to transfer the business rules into home and home rules into business. And in your consciousness, though, as Alok pointed out, the most intense and even violent action in the business world should ideally be based on a profound peace and impersonality within. Ideally. We don't have it, fine. We start with I, the ego, wants to do good, wants to do right, and before I act, I invoke the Divine Mother. I say, Mother, help me. This is the action. If I'm doing wrong, show me, guide me. If I am doing right, help me, give me the strength. So the constant reference by the ego identity with the inner higher aspiration and divine presence is what will gradually put it in touch, thin the ego and eventually 
replace the ego by the higher inspiration. So nothing should prevent you from firm and even necessary action. Yeah, the change will be from dog eat dog to God eat God. <laughs> <laughs> so we have lovely set of uh, dog eat dog to be replaced by God eats God. Vishnu, Vishnu khadati Vishnu. Brahma khadati Brahma. That will happen only when your competitor accepts the standard. <laughs> And if there are no emotions in the soul, it will be a very cold and lifeless kind of a soul. <laughs> anyway, Shadalu will answer that. Uh, Savitri, I want. It's a different I'm not kind sure of what you mean emotion. by the two sheets here, but uh, nor by, by what you mean by the soul. So you'll have to say, you mean the psychic being? Yes, I mean the psychic being as, okay. as being as the as the ultimate that gets there. When I when I'm talking about the two sheets, is the as not as self the but psychic. That's right. It's, okay. It's, uh, the psychic being is of the substance of the divine consciousness, and by itself does not have either the thought formations of mind, nor the emotional play of the vital nor the gross density of the physical. It uses these three as its instruments of action in the world. And it has something which is a precursor to all three. It has its own divine substance. It has its own divine glowing of relation with the divine and an expression of love, joy, beauty and harmony which can flow through the emotions. And it has its own perception of truth and falsehood and discrimination which can flow through mind and guide mind. Okay, so in order to be able to reach to the psychic as a first step, it is therefore necessary to quiet the mind, to quiet the emotions and possibly to still the body. Then it makes possible to go through those layers and to be able to go deep enough or to feel its intimation. As long as the mind and emotions are in agitation and activity, they screen the intimation of the psychic, which is very gentle and very soft, not insistent at all. But by itself, the psychic is not of the emotional type. It is like the, um, the human, just like the animal experience of the same quality undergoes such a sea change at the human level that one doesn't recognize it as an animal experience at all. So, the human experience of things, let's say love, you know, love is an emotion or let's say knowledge, knowledge is a you know, thought. Now this experience or will, they undergo a change when we touch the psychic bedrock. There is in it knowledge, there is it in, in it love, there is in it will, but not the way it is experienced at the human plane. So it is not void of that. Because it's not, it does not carry that quality. Human emotions are of a very turbulent kind. They carry a certain quality. 
Similarly, human knowledge is of a certain kind, human will is of a certain kind. The psychic has its own, uh, if one may use the word, you know, love. It does not have the degradations which, you know, at the human level are there. It does not have those mixtures of truth and falsehood that we experience at the human level. But it has its own uh, divine equivalent of these things. So in that sense. Perhaps the fundamental distinction we can make is the human emotions are always caused. They have a cause, they have a starting point and, and an ending point and a dependency on circumstances. Whereas the psychic expression of its love and sweetness is causeless. Depends on nothing and is always present. And it's directed towards the divine, except in its early experiences when it uses the human, it leans towards the human. Shurabinda, in fact, when he describes the characteristics of the psychic, so he says in its early stage of seeking, in its early stages, it leans upon the human to draw the necessary experience. But the most intimate characteristic of the psychic is love for the divine. A sweetness. So these are very much, you know, one may use the, one may, if one wants to use the word emotion. But it's not emotion the way we experience, so we don't use the word emotions for it. But it's not an absence of, let us say, love. It's not an absence of that. But the quality changes so much that we no more use the word in, in human terms. Because the experience is very different. So for instance, the knowledge of the psychic is a spontaneous intuitive knowledge about what is right and what is wrong. It is not based on a certain kind of analysis of surface data. So, only when one has gone through it, one knows it. It intuitively understands and discriminates between what is true and what is false. It's no more based on, you know, witnesses, as the typical mental knowledge is the way in the court you call witnesses and you decide and weigh and evidence. For instance, you know, how would the mind decide whether there is divinity or not? When you are in front of Mother and Shurabindo, whether Mother and Shurabindo are divine or not, how is the mind going to decide? For every argument of the mind, there is a counter-argument. But for the psychic, when it stands, it recognizes the divine, those whose psychic is developed. Of course, if their psychic is not developed, you may stand face to face before Krishna and you will end up saying that, well, he is a thief and he is a Mayavi, you know, that's what. It's a degree of psychic development, but when the psychic stands face to face before the divine, it has no doubt about it because by the shock of the contact it recognizes. In the morning, you know, that shloka comes which um, I think two days Hasmuk Bhai has played. When the strings of the heart are cut asunder, then all doubts vanish. It's like as if a whole cloud has vanished. And you stand and you recognize. That's it. And then the experience follows. You don't have to keep on judging objectively, but the experience follows spontaneously. But you see that one thing is that when you have the emotions, and if you look at from your yogic neuroscience standpoint, it is called psycho-neuroendocrinology. Emotions, we call it energy in motion. Emotion creates thoughts. Where is the emotion registered first? This is called a system, called a limbic system. The limbic system, what is all called the psyche. There is a two nuclei called amygdalian hippocampus that registering that emotion. Limbic system is sending a neuropeptide to hypothalamus. 
Hypothalamus is a homeostatic area. It starts to create all the homeostasis. What hypothalamus does, it creates, it sends another neuropeptide to pituitary gland. And the pituitary sends the signal to the, your autonomic nervous system and creates all the hormones and that started creating on the physical body. So start from the spirit. What is the side for psyche is a limbic system. Then you turn the hypothalamus. Then you come to the pituitary. The altered hormonal homeostasis is created by the emotions which you created first. Emotions can be either both ways. It could be fear, it could be the love. But both are registered in the limbic system. I'd like to share an interesting story, which is perhaps uh, give an example of something very beautiful. There's a lady who lives in the ashram still. In her childhood, she used to see Sri Krishna, and he would come and play with her in the garden. And for years, she had that contact. And then one day, he appeared from behind the bush and told her, now I will stop coming. And he said, but you will meet me in physical form. Mm -hmm. And he left. And he never came. Years passed. At the age of 12, her father happened to be in Pondicherry with her. It happened to be a Darshan day. He just felt like taking her and they went. And when she stood before Sri Aurobindo, she recognized him as that. And then she stayed on. This recognition comes not by the mind, even the form. Appearance of form is different, but it's the psychic which knows, and it knows the divine. It's a recognition. It's not even a guidance. It's a recognition. That's it. Everything changes. Yes. Uh, when you have uh, patients who are either schizophrenic or some mental depressed people, uh, we, we treat with them antidepressants or antipsychotic drugs as well as cognitive therapy. Has yoga got a part in it? Yes. Uh, there is a big study in uh, even in India and UK. It's going to, it is published in the British Medical Journal, BMG, that it has been shown that if you take the psychiatric patient, we call it a mentally challenging patient, if you put them in a temple, and if you put in a spiritual environment, there is a, at least 60 to 70 percent improvement of their psychiatric condition. And this is being even published in a scientific journal now. And we can talk about all of it from spiritual standpoint, how it works, but practically it is being seen and done. Yes. <laughs> Very good question. Very good question. Alokji, I would like for you to repeat the question for the video purpose. The question is, if crisis helps you to grow towards God, 
if there is no crisis, does it mean that God has forgotten you? I am sorry, I am paraphrasing it, right? Is it right? It, I mean, as if that you're not progressing. <laughs> yeah. There are signs that the journey is on, but does it mean uh, that I'm It may mean that you are so beautifully open and the Divine Mother is carrying you in her arms, safe and smooth, taking upon herself all the blows that would come to you. It may mean that. I may not say the same thing to someone else. <laughs> 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 because no two answers would be alike in this situation, but it may mean that. No, crisis is not that divine wants us to go through crisis, that's for sure. And the whole idea of surrender, the whole idea of faith, devotion, the qualities which you mention are precisely so that we don't get crisis. It's precisely when we don't tread the sunlit path and we stray and we stray sometimes far. Someone was asking me that, you know, why divine allows all these things? So, at one place, I think, um, I forget who has said, but it's, it's very relevant that the divine gives us a long rope and at the end of it, we can hang ourselves by it. <laughs> so, <laughs> he... He allows us, He shows us the sunlit path, walk on it, there are ways, surrender, have faith, I'll carry you. Mother does not want her children to suffer and go into crisis. There are such beautiful stories where Mother has said when, you know, in the ashram, those, uh, now, have you been to ashram? I think you have been to ashram. Okay. So, in the dining room, at one time, the porcelain, you know, people used to have in those ordinary uh, tray and Katoris, and then uh, someone offered steel katoris and steel tray, and they were really nice and big, and you know. <laughs> so when someone thanked mother, mother, by your grace, now we can you know have it in this. Mother said, "My child, I want my children to have in plates of gold." <laughs> she doesn't want her children to suffer and struggle and uh, go through difficulties and tortures. The cosmic forces do that. And she knows their place, so she wants to shield us against it. There is a story of someone who one day in a fit of anger told, you know, revolted and he said certain things uh, against mother and, you know, in a very revolted mood. That night, this is not to scare and mother doesn't punish anyone. This is what is there in this story. So he got a terribly solid knee and he had you know, severe pain and all this, so he felt that, you know, it, mother has punished him. So he went limping and mother looked at him. He said, mother, I am sorry, I think, you know, this is what I did, so you must have punished. Mother said, my child, I do not punish, but there are cosmic forces who don't like it. <laughs> there, there are the gods, you know, they don't care. If you read in Savitri, there is a description of the spirit's absolute potencies, who don't reckon about virtue and sin and they just simply strike. Deep surrender is their source of might. When you read the Durga's uh, whole triple soul forces, she says, I reckon not of virtue nor of sin. I do the deed God has put into my heart. Heedless of human sense of, you know, all these things. So there are the gods who just don't like it. 
so she shields us against all the assaults which because of our own stupidity we would incur but we are so stupid that we even walk out of our grace <laughs> mother used to tell people my child you are taking my protection for granted there is this uh, you know there is one couple who is still there in the ashram and uh, this lady I, i mean many would probably recognize now she was in um, in the secretariat position in chennai and also in pondicherry so her husband at weekend would drive very fast on the you know pondicherry chennai road and to reach and have mother's darshan so and she would be sitting and praying literally you know <laughs> so uh, whenever you know they would say she would say mother's grace is with me nothing would happen and he has narrated this story himself to me so one day mother told him my child don't take my grace for granted <laughs> so sometimes we do extreme stupidities uh, that's why um, you know outside this thing came up shobindo tells nirodha quoting from somewhere that there are only two things which are infinite the universe and human stupidity but of the former we are not sure so human beings do that but they don't want us so if you are not experiencing it is beautiful provided you are also experiencing signs of growth which you just mentioned and it should be like that in fact there is no reason why human beings they we are not born to suffer and go through crisis but the idea is if it occurs we should take it in the right spirit the right attitude and we should get the lesson from them so that in future we don't have to go through it because we are all poor learners therefore all of us sometime or the other in life go through crisis and if we get the lesson right we grow if we don't get the lesson first the divines gently whispers urja beta nahi then he throws little water then no then he gives a little <laughs> then we say oh you hurt me <laughs> but it's a beautiful thing sunlit path to put the question in a general context uh, a person who is not growing will get kicked to grow by circumstances or even by conscious forces on the other hand a person who is growing rapidly may get attacked by hostile forces just because he is growing rapidly so there's no direct correlation it can mean either way for and you have to see the case yeah the only difference is if you are growing inside and you are attacked inwardly you will always be in a state of joy and calm you will have difficulties you will be surrounded by a host of them but fear anxiety worries all this will not strike you because you know you are in the lap of the divine mother and she will carry you through everything there will be both a state of peace joy everything inside and i am telling this to you in from very very personal experiences you will be in the midst of death and it won't bother you there is a popular saying all that happens happens for good and shyurbindo disagrees he says everything that happens does not happen for the good but having happened the divine makes the best use of it that's the approach we have to take in our personal life i had a question which was uh running by actually how do you differentiate between self discipline and rigidity of whether it's your mental rigidity or religious rigidity that's why sundays are given <laughs> so that you don't become too rigid in your self discipline <laughs> See, one one very important thing to realize we all talk about fear of 
what? Fear of death. This is the most important fear in our life. But the most more than that, the fear of change. We do not want to change. We are absolutely rigid. And you heard me speaking whole morning today, yesterday. Rigidity is disease. Flexibility is health. When you are rigid in your body, what happens? You get into that six-feet box. When you are flexibility in your EKGs and EEGs, you are alive. When it's rigid, you get a straight line. Rigidity in the mind, the same thing. So the change is very hard. But you have to remember one thing. To live in this world, you have to change. And that is the only way to get the rigidity out from your physical body, from your mental body, and spiritual body. And change will happen. The seed we are putting all inside you, by doing this, born the rituals and the listening, what you are having here now, this is just a seed. You go home, you nurture it, water it, the tree will grow, and you will see what happens to the rigidity. It will all go away. I think the distinction we can make between rigidity and self-discipline is that when you're rigid, you're unable to do the other possibilities. That inability is the sign of rigidity. Whereas self-discipline is a choice. Um, I have an excellent example here of my own teacher, M.P. Pandit. Being in Pondicherry, 40 years, ashram, discipline, routine, everything was regimented in his daily life. But when he would travel, he would adapt to whatever the circumstance was in the most extreme situations when he came to the US, for example, 30 years ago, he didn't get vegetarian food. And there were weeks and months during which all he ate was bread and ice cream. That's all that was veg. And there were other patterns of his eating habits, sleep habits, tea and other things, all of which were so regimented in Pondicherry. He just adjusted to the situation. No complaint, nobody knew what problems he faced. He came back and slid back into his regimented life by choice. And that's it. There was no difficulty in adapting to any situation. That was because already the whole consciousness had been plastified so much. But you'll feel the difference. Yes. Uh, Sadhguru, uh, you What of it? Can you be more specific? Uh, is it related? And if it is, like how? Like... What do you mean by concept of Dattatriya? It is yoga and Sriya I don't know enough of that, but uh, generally speaking, and this is not specific to Dattatriya, most of the traditions of yoga, as they have survived today in India and equivalent systems in the rest of the world, have in the last 2,000 years particularly aimed at a realization of the divine in its static aspect. And at some level, in some form or the other, view the world either as unchangeable or illusory. 
I don't know if this is so in that in, in that the Thetis teaching, is it? Well, it, it more concentrates on absolute truth. That's why yes, I was. Yes. And in reference to that, then all relatives are seen as unreal or illusory, because only the absolute is seen then to be real. Shurbindo's position is that the relatives are an expression, a manifestation of the absolute, and are therefore to be included in the realization to the extent that one cannot know the divine entirely unless you know both his static and his dynamic side equally. The divine transcending, the divine, the divine universal and the divine individual and all three simultaneously is the complete realization of the divine. This is probably the main distinction. If I'm being given an analogy here, if you look at a diamond, there is the essence of diamondness, which is independent of its form. And then there is the expression of the diamond in form with facets. And when you gaze upon the diamond and observe it inside, you look through one of the facets, but you can see the whole diamond. You turn it around, you look through another facet, you can still the whole, see the whole diamond. This is the overmental experience. You're always seeing the whole, but through a specialized facet as your front, as your interface. But in the supermind, you are one with the whole. There's no specialized facet. It is an indivisible whole, infinitely rich. Does that, is that enough? Does that clarify the distinction? Through the supramental consciousness that the divine plays with these universes, manifold universes, so the highest gods represent a facet of the diamond in that sense. They each embody the whole, but in a special expression. That's why in the Veda, when a deity is invoked, they extol that deity as the basis of all other deities. And then they invoke another deity and say, oh, you are the one in whom all others are present. And then they invoke another and say, you are the one in whom all are present. I'm new to this, so forgive my ignorance. What is the difference between believing in the divine or believing in Krishna or Jesus or Ganesh? The form of the divine you believe in becomes for you the embodiment of the divine who is beyond form and formlessness. So to each person the form comes because we are, of course, we all have a, uh, we are tied through the senses. And so there is a great significance of the divine embodied as a form. And it becomes easy for us to approach the divinity that is represented in the form. And it may be Jesus, Krishna, or it may be the human figure of a guru. And that is why the well-known um, sloka that uh, Guru Sakshat Parbrahma Tasmai Sri Guru Venama, that the embodied divine is to be seen whoever is your master is to be seen as Sachidanand Brahma because he becomes for you the passage towards that that is how that is his role or his function 
So if you naturally believe in Krishna, this is only thing is that one must understand what serves as a passage for me may not be a passage for someone else. That's where dogmatism and fundamentalism and things come in. If I believe in Krishna and Krishna becomes my path to the infinite, uh, then it's fine with me because for me he is the divine, represented in the form of Krishna. But the problem comes if I say those who approach through Shiva or through Sri or through Christ, they are doing something wrong. That is wrong. That's where religion, cult and you know fundamentalism comes in. For me, Krishna is the approach. For somebody else, it may be uh, Shiva. For somebody else, it may be Christ. For somebody else, it may be a mental figure of love. These are so many approaches to the divine. But may, let me give you one more little example. That our existence is in the body, mind and spirit. At the spiritual level, the divine is no form, no qualities. It's a nirakar nirguna. You don't need anything to have that spiritual divine. In the mind level is a parabrahma. It is no form, but is quality. It's a nirakar shaguna. At the body level, you have the symbols. These symbols were exactly saying that it could Krishna, Christ, or Mother, love, anything you are doing, you are doing the prayer to that infinite divine, the spiritual divine, through a symbol at the level of what we call avatar, which has a form and qualities. You know. But what happens there, when you transcend your mind, you don't need any of this symbolism. Like we come from a place in, uh, in Bengal, so we have Shanti Niketan, we have Tagore, Rabindranath Tagore. When Tagore came to the spot, if you go to Shanti Niketan, where Tagore prays, there's nothing. There's just a one empty room. Because he has transcended his mind, from, transcended from body to the mind, it is that ultimate divine. So Brahman, no form, no shape, but a Brahman has some qualities but no form in the body level, in avatar, we have all the form and the qualities. That's the distinction. Add, I'd like to add two observations. One is, each of these gurus, for lack of a better word, I'm making a generalization, each of these gurus, deities, are gateways. The error people make is to get stuck with the gateway. I come to the gate, I love the gate so much, I hold the gate, I never enter the building. Many religions do that. They say X is the only way to God. You must surrender to X. He is the only one, etc. But then it's all about X, X, X. You never get to God. You see, that's the error religions make. And if one religion meets another and says, we both want to get to God. Their difference is not about God. Their difference is, no, you have to go through my gateway X. Another says, go through my gateway Y. And religions are stuck with their gateways. So don't make that error first. Second, there is a difference between the various gateways. Each represents an aspect of the divine, an attribute, a quality, a guna. Okay? An attribute and quality. Ganesha, for example, represents that aspect of the divine, which 
overcomes uh, difficulties by the force of knowledge. That's an aspect of knowledge specifically to overcome difficulties. Durga, for example, is that power of the divine which destroys obstacles and destroys evil and liberates good and truth. They're very different. If you had to see relationship between Ganesha and Shiva, Shiva is the Lord, of whom Ganesha is an emanation, therefore his child. There is a hierarchy, a natural hierarchy of the attributes which are manifested. And so, if you pray to the Shiva, if you pray to Shiva, he includes the power of Ganesha. Ganesha emerges from him as his emissary to serve you because you call upon Shiva. And in the hierarchy of human forms in which there have been these manifestations, there are greater and lesser, less complete and more complete. Those who are specific to a civilization, specific to a time, specific to a message, and their relevance passes with time. And then there are those who stand and preside over a whole era. So we make a distinction between Vibhuti and Avatar, for example. Vibhuti is an emanation of the divine come for a work who is not conscious of his divinity. And when the work is done, it goes. The Vibhuti itself can be two types. He takes birth, he leaves, or he associates with a human being, inspires him, and the work is done, he goes, and the human being is left empty, incapable anymore of his magical capacity earlier. And the avatar, which is a direct projection of the divine, conscious of his divinity, conscious of his mission, and including all past facets of manifestation so far expressed. In the way we look upon Sri Aurobindo and the mother, we view them as the supramental avatar, which includes the power of all past avatars. In him, as part of that manifestation, the complete manifestation of the, of the avatar, all the aspects of the divine as gods are included and there are beautiful experiences and descriptions people have had when meeting Sri Aurobindo of seeing Shiva, Vishnu and other things in him. There was, uh, there were also at the same time certain vibhutis and uh, emanations which were born at the same time. Among them was one Ganapati Muni, I don't know if you have heard of him. He was an emanation of Ganesha. And Ramana Maharshi was an emanation of Kartikeya, and they were all present in the same region. Though Ramana Maharshi never physically met the mother, at the time of his passing, he asked for the mother's photograph. And his disciples didn't understand. They thought it was his mother he was referring to. But Ganapati Muni did come and meet the mother and Sri Aurobindo. And when he came, he had a meditation with the mother. And he said, it was extraordinary while I was with you. The power penetrated from all sides. Normally it just descends. It penetrated from all sides. And I had the intuition that you are the Divine Mother and Shakambari is an aspect of the Divine Mother that he saw and that I am your child. And Mother simply told him, it is more than an intuition. So these are things which uh, people have seen, felt, and we relate to Sri Aurobindo very differently from the way we would relate to Vibhutis or simply great yogis or saints or various deities and their emanations. Few things, uh, since Hasmuk Bhai said that we can also ask questions. <laughs> so, a couple of things were there that this idea about uh, the, the Guru being a you know, passage to go into that, 
we must understand that it's first of all it's not like you know one opens a door and walks into he to begin with calls us on the path he carries us through the way through 100000 trials tribulations and difficulties and then he takes to that place gets back watches over our entire development so even when through the persona of the guru one has touched the infinity that he represents one can and if one is worth a worthy disciple one still loves the persona of the guru it is they don't contradict each other and there is a beautiful prayer of the mother to that extent and i can give you a very simple human example who is the person who first came as love in your our life it is our human mother you know she comes and she embodies the love and gives us when we needed support she gave us we needed nourishment without our asking she gave us she prepares and feeds us with all her love so that one day that love begins to blossom in our hearts and spread into the world around now what a child it would be who say no i don't need your mom <laughs> it would speak very poorly of the quality of the child inside so when he goes back he doesn't now go to the mother simply because he still needs that you know baby food but he goes because that love enriched in his heart now relates with the same mother in a different way initially it was like a helplessly dependent baby who needs to be fed and you know but then it relates to her always mother will have something of that love and wisdom which he cannot ever embody because mother's heart is a mother's heart whenever the child is in distress even at 40 if he goes to the mother he knows that okay i am independent everything but the day i need she is the one who will perfectly understand and he goes to her in gratitude that you made me what i am today and he gives back what he has received so the relation between the guru and the disciple is a very complex one it doesn't end with the realization you know it's like you know what he projects us into that and now you know you please out of my way i mean we it's it's on the contrary the relation becomes strengthened on another level when krishna did when arjuna did know krishna as the master he related in one way when he knew krishna as the master he related in another way so there is the beauty and joy of this relation which one enjoys in a manifold way to begin with he may be just the master then he begins to relate with him as a friend and a playmate then as a father and a mother then as a beloved There's all the varieties of relationship can be embodied in that and it adds to the delight of all our you know manifested yeah. universe so it's a very complex that's why great mystic saint has very beautifully remarked guru gobind dau khade kako lagu pao the guru is standing in front of me and gobind <laughs> gobind nisha gobind the the one the keeper of the cows of the light guru gobind both are standing in front of me and i am in this dilemma whose feet shall i bow down to he says balihari guru aapki jin gobind yo bitaye that i still feel gratitude so the first one to whom i rever is thou o master because you were the one who showed me the way and this is the way the divine teaches humanity you know there was a man in ashram whom the mother i know we have exceeded time 
another five minutes is a joyous satsang. You know? We are all in infinity. Otherwise, anyways, I'll be sitting outside and you know doing. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Every day till 12 o'clock. So, <laughs> five minutes. Those who want to walk, please, uh, you know, are free. Uh, so, um, so what happened is that, you know, there was a person to whom mother always used to be over kind and generous. She was always an embodiment of, you know, love and kindness. But any time this person could come, she would shower her love, compassion and all kinds of things. He was a very crude make uh, human being. So one day, Mother was asked that this man doesn't look to be a person with any great spiritual merit or any great inner consciousness and you have allowed him to walk any time and come and what is this we don't understand. You know what mother has to say now she is divine mother who could be touching all these big words we speak Brahman, Par Brahman and Par 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 Brahman and all the Brahman <laughs> together she could dwell in that like this you know that mother of whom I am speaking uh, an incident, then I'll come back to it, of whom we are speaking, you know. There were Amritta and all these people are reading book. Mother is passing by. My child, what are you reading? Mother, life divine. Oh, life divine. Yes, mother, we are reading Brahman. Oh, but mother, we understand nothing. Oh, you understand nothing? Mother gives a tap here and walks up the stairs and they are in the trance of Brahman. Mother comes back and they are still in that trance. She brings them down to the level of... Then she tells them, My child, I can give you Brahman realization like this. But we are not here for that. Can we imagine? When at 12.30, 1 o'clock, you know, the day of the ashram or the night of the ashram used to get over and mother would pass by to her room. For decades she was taking rest for 1 hour or 2 hours at night. And that too, she was working in all the subtle levels. And when she is passing by, one of the girls felt very sleepy. You know, these three girls used to wait. And she then leaves her flower with another girl and she goes away. She says, tell mother I was very sleepy. So when this girl tells mother she has gone away, leaving these flowers for you. Mother says, you know my child, even seers and sages have to do thousand years of tapasya to have a glimpse of mine. So next day this girl felt very bad and she said, Mother, but you know, you have brought us like uh, in the Vat Vraksh Chaya. So we don't understand all this tapasya. We are spoiled by your love. <laughs> so mother embraced her and showered a lot of love. Now about that mother I am saying, she would give this man such extraordinary privileges. So when someone asked, Mother, why do you give such extraordinary privileges to this man? Mother said, you know my child, when I came to Pondicherry for the first time, I asked someone, where does Shurabindo live? And he pointed with his finger and said, there. <laughs> and all her life, as a divine, she felt gratitude. Can we imagine what consciousness that is? All her life, that he was the one who just pointed out that there is Shurabindo. She showed the way to live. Yoga. Yoga is not theory. She showed the way to live yoga. That this gratitude that one feels simply because he has shown that look, there is the divine. But kind of coming back to the original question, what you ask, you know, that remember what Swadhalu was saying, you know, all about this religion. As a Hindu, Hindu is not a religion. Hindu is a dharma. 
Hindu is not an ism. There is nothing called Hinduism. Religions are called exclusive. The gateway he was talking about. Abrahamic religions are exclusive. But they're inclusive religions, like Sufis in Islam, mystic Judaism. They want to look outside that gate, see what is there. But Hindu dharma is called pluralistic. It is okay to be different. Okay for me to pray. Hindus say that you don't even have to be Hindu to practice Hindu dharma. You can be a total atheist, can tell a Hindu dharma. Your deities are different at home. In the morning you wake up, just say my karma. If you just say God, Brahma, whatever you say, please let me do my karma. Remember I said this morning in Yogi Kapsai, <coughs> first thing you do in the morning, called Ushapan. Drink a glass of water, then you look at your hand, called Karadarpa. This is your karma. This is your pluralistic Hindu dharma. So keep it in mind that that is the way the Hindu dharma is based. It's a way of life philosophy. Thank you. I, I want to add just something very minor, but it's a very complex last topic, but this I think is important from the practice point of view. Uh, Sri Aurobindo makes an observation that each one of us finds ourselves naturally drawn to certain aspects of the divine because they correspond to certain aspects of our personality. And even sometimes it can happen at different stages in the yoga, certain aspects come forward and at that time this particular form of divinity draws us much more and later another aspect comes forward and that aspect of divinity draws us much more. If you keep in mind the larger perception that there is only one divine and all forms are aspects, then uh, you can easily find your way through without ever losing the central reference. In the Indian tradition, of course, when we say Krishna, there is the Krishna, which is the historical Krishna of the Bhagavad Gita, who also who is an avatar. But we use Krishna in a different sense also. Krishna is the name we give to the highest personality of the divine. The divine can stand back aloof, witness or transcend. But when he reaches out to the universe and embraces the universe with love and draws the whole universe to himself. The drawing is in Sanskrit, akarshana, root sound krish. He who draws the whole universe to himself with his love, that is Krishna. The common translation of Krishna is wrong. They say Krishna is black. It's not black. It's he who draws, mesmerizes, draws us to himself with his love. So the name of that highest personality of the divine, we give Krishna. And that includes all personalities of the divine. Okay. Last question. No, no, we'll be saying we can go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Officially last. <laughs> then we'll have a last test last. Uh, Shridhar, if you can uh, answer this one question. Uh, Hinduism, we just spoke of. Uh, no, he, 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 no, he The Hindu dharma. What, what is it? Because uh, most of us have a very hard time trying to even define it. Um, so if you can throw some light, some very clear, crisp picture of... We don't need to go. <laughs> what do you want, a one-liner or a whole night? Yeah. Either way is fine with me, it depends on... 
Shirbinda describes the Indian cultural spiritual tradition as a vast multifaceted movement taking up all sides of human nature and all aspects of life, everything included, turning it all towards the divine and in a multifaceted ascension growing upwards. This is the characteristic of the Indian spiritual cultural tradition. And he says, it was so vast and so diverse, it gave itself no name. At best, it referred to itself as the Sanatana Dharma. Sanatana means eternal. Dharma is the dynamic expression of truth, the divine truth. So that which is seeking and realizing or seeking to realize the divine truth, the eternal truth. And therefore, over time, its forms change. As a civilization, it has reinvented itself many times, but never lost this central thread of purpose and the overall overarching purpose of realizing God and transforming life. Historically, from the Mideast, when they looked towards India as a land of knowledge, land of wealth, it was the wealthiest country for 5,000 years until the British reduced it to zero and then it had to rebuild itself. But it was the wealthiest by British records producing 24% of the global industrial output. While England was only 1% when England stepped into as a colonial ruler. But as a land of knowledge and wealth, when they referred to India, they referred to it as the land of the seven rivers. In Sanskrit, Sapta Sindhu. Which in the Persian pronunciation, Sir becomes Her. So it became Hapta Hindu. And then people who lived in that land were called Hindu. And that's how the name tag has stuck. It has stuck more as an ethnic description. And therefore, the culture of that space and its religious traditions were labeled Hinduism, which is a misnomer. Sri points out it was Sanatana Dharma as a vast multifaceted movement which gave itself no name. That's what we relate to. And that's what the world has to receive and perhaps India has to gift to the whole world. Actually, in, in our place, we still have a people who cannot pronounce Sha. It's a Ha. Shindu, we can Hindu. So actually, Hindu, there is a call Sanatan Vedic Dharma. You know, you ask all the, our, all the Hindu people, do you have a, your scripture, do you have a book? Do you have a Bible? Do you have a Quran? What answer do you give them? We are pluralistic. You know, we can tell you we have a Veda, we have a Upanishad, all these things, but you know, every piece of paper is a scripture. We never put anything in the floor. We take the paper, we do our blessings, put way higher above us. It's a fascinating philosophy. Please study Hindu Dharma. Not a question, just Shridhar, can you talk about the three aspects that you are going to talk about, about Hinduism? The three realizations. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, The spiritual base on which this whole spiritual tradition and culture is uh, founded is composed of three realizations which are relevant and which are universal, relevant today and universal for all. First, that there is only one divine, one source. 
You may approach it in a million ways, but it is one source. Name it a million names, but it's still one source. One source and one goal. Second realization that that divinity is not up there somewhere. It is immanent in this universe and is the basis of everything. The third realization that each one has his own way of realizing that divinity. There is no one way for all. This is the error of religions, is to define one system and say, all should go through this passage in this method. But the principle and perception here is each one is unique, and according to the uni uniqueness of his temperament and his line of development of the soul, there is a unique line of growth and realization of the divine. So as many people, so many ways. If we had to reconcile this spiritual realization with the truth of religions, one would say, as many people, so many religions.